Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. When I was about the age of most of the people that are in the chapel today, there was an Episcopal preacher in this country, an Episcopal priest by the name of Samuel Shoemaker. Dr. Shoemaker would go every year to Princeton University and would speak in that great Gothic chapel there. He had a flair for the dramatic, but it always had a purpose. So one of those days, he mounted that high pulpit, got himself set, and then looked down and thundered at the student body with an opening line like this, you princes of privilege. Now, in those days, there were no ladies in the student body at Princeton, and so that was appropriate. But Sam Shoemaker felt that any student in that day who had the opportunity to get an education at Princeton University was a person who was highly privileged. And so he told them so, and really, he was right. When I heard that, I thought about uh, my education at Asbury, and I wondered uh, about how I felt about my institution in terms of how he felt about Princeton. And I need to say that when I left here, I did not feel myself particularly privileged. I was grateful for what I had picked up in terms of some learning, some skills that had been imparted and sharpened, and some relationships that have enriched my life across the years. But I really didn't think of myself in any sense as a privileged prince. But as the years have passed, I have found an inner voice inside me that's saying, you're infinitely more privileged than you think, and you need to reevaluate that. And so I found myself backing up to say, was there something that came to me when I was a student here that put me in a select group? And I began to realize that there was. Because while I was here, there began to cross my mind a concept, an idea. One could almost say a vision, personal one. And that concept was the idea of a life lived as totally as is human possible, under the dominance of one thought. And that thought was to do the thing God put you in this world to do, and to let his will be supreme. You know, all of us need some system of guidance. In the ancient world, before they had compasses, when seamen found themselves out of sight of shore, 
And when the night came, the question was, uh, how do you steer? And so very early they learned that Polaris, the star which we speak of as the North Star, was stationary and up on our horizon, that they could guide themselves by that. Because they knew that if they could determine where one point of the compass was, it was no great problem to find uh, the other point of the compass. Now, through the years, I've realized that uh, this institution, God, through this institution, gave me a point of reference like that. And it has been a guiding star, as it were, across the years. If I wanted to sum it up in a single sentence, I think I might do it with one of our Lord's Beatitudes. You will remember he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now I'm aware that there's some ambiguity in that word pure because it can mean clean in the sense that it is a heart without defilement and without contamination within. I don't want to focus on that this morning because there have come times in life when uh, the tempests on the outside were great enough and life was complicated enough and there was enough ambiguity that when I looked within I wondered But there is a second meaning that we can use for pure, and it has to do with concentration. We speak about concentrate, pure grape juice, or whatever you want to use as an illustration. And what we mean is that there is a singleness about it, a consistent unity about it. What I think Kierkegaard or Pascal, or Fenelon spoke about, you will remember Kierkegaard said it extremely well when he said basically, purity of heart is the will, one will. Now Jesus apparently thought in such categories, because you will remember he spoke on at least two occasions of having an eye single to the glory of the Father. An eye single devoted exclusively to light and to truth and to God. You will remember that he illustrated that in his own life by saying, I came not to do my own will. I'm down here not to do my thing. I came to do my Father's will. And that commitment never varied in him. Really, I think that's what Wesley was reaching for when he talked about perfect love. Not that it couldn't increase or any of that. Perfect in only one sense, in that one person had come to dominate freely your life. Now, it was sitting in this auditorium that that concept began to turn within my head. And when I began to conceive it, I found myself drawn to it. And I must admit, I found myself enticed by it and charmed. 
And something of the hold of that enticement and that charm lingers still deep within my spirit. I think that's where Paul was. You will remember he said that uh, for to me to live is Christ. Everything within his life was devoted to that one end, one person. He lived for him. You will remember that he said, this one thing I do, this one thing I do. Forgetting the things that are past, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You will remember he expressed it in other ways when he wrote to his Corinthian converts and said, I determined when I was with you not to know anything save Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Come to the place where a total life has a central commitment. Where you say, I want to do your will. But I think we need to go a step beyond that. We need to say, I choose to do your will. Because if you're like me, and if your life is like mine, you will find the time, times when the want to vary. And the times when you'll have a hard time finding the want to. And you may find a lot of not want to within you, but that doesn't have to control you. Even when the not want to is there, you can say, through grace, I choose to do your will. Now, Asbury, in this auditorium and in the community here, began to tell me that it was safe to do that. Because I had a lot of voices in me that said, that's dangerous. You turn your life over to somebody else, what may come from it? And what may he do with it? But here what I was told was, it was safe to look Christ in the face and say, yes. I was told here that it was right that if that focus could be kept, conscience would be clear. If the conscience was educated properly. When I was here, I was told it was possible. Because there are a lot of people who do not believe it's possible. But I was told it is possible for a life to come under the dominance of that concept. And I was told that it was good. That it would not be bad, that it would be good. And I guess that's the reason this verse in Matthew 5 appeals to me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But first, you will notice, the first thing he said was, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, that word blessed is so religious that most of us don't know quite what to do with it. But if we think about some synonyms, it gets easier because if you use the secular term, you could say fortunate, lucky. You could say uh, it's advantageous. It's to your advantage to have a single eye and a centered soul. In fact, if you have that, you are to be envied. Anyone who has it is to be envied. And you certainly, if you have it, you are, to use Shoemaker's language, you are highly privileged. 
Now, in what way is one fortunate if his life can be focused like that? Well, one of the things that I found is that it radically simplifies life. It means that there are a lot of battles you never have to face. And there is a lot of turmoil through which you never have to go because uh, it centers you. Now, in doing that, it does not mean that there will be no conflict, no stress, because conflict and stress are a part of creaturely existence. Wait till you get married. Then wait till you have children. Then wait, wait. It's always there. But what I want to say is that that centering on him radically reduces part of that conflict. Does not remove it. But what it means is that there can be one spot in your life that is not under the control of circumstance. There is one center in your being that can be stable when everything around you is in turmoil. That central citadel within that has been commit where the commitment has been made to him. The storms can rage and the floods can roll and the tempests whirl all around you. But in the middle of the storm there can be an eye of calm. Because something has been settled. And that is where your ultimate commitment is. Now, a second thing is it saves a massive amount of psychic energy. You know how much energy you can fritter away when you don't know what you're supposed to do or what you want to do or where you're going to go? When you're reading the road map and saying, which road shall I take here? Let me try this one, and if that doesn't work, we'll try another one. It saves a massive amount of energy when you can concentrate your life on his will. You see, indecision in the heart is debilitating. It is enervating. It can be paralyzed. And at the least, it saps a significant amount of creative energy. Read the seventh chapter of the book of Romans and ask yourself if you'd like to live there the rest of your life. Because if you try to live there the rest of your life, you can count on it, you will never go anywhere because the inner conflict is too great. James understood this when he said the double-minded man and it's interesting that word occurs only twice in the New Testament. And James uses it both times. A double-minded person is unstable in all of his or her ways. So it's very hard for the double-minded person to stand straight because he doesn't know which way to go. It means, thirdly, that you can concentrate the resources that you have and pull them together and apply them to the thing that ultimately is most significant and ultimately counts. There's no question in my mind that that makes a person 
more productive. It will make a person infinitely more creative. It will certainly make a person more fruitful. Even if you choose a wrong focus and give yourself totally to it, I suspect there will be more evidence in your life of creativity and fruitfulness and productivity. But if you choose the wrong center, then you're going to have to live with ultimate chaos and ultimate sterility. The thing I like is that you don't have to have a great deal. But if you take it all and concentrate it at the right point, it becomes eternally significant. And through the years, one of the things that I have found, and when you get as old as I am, the memory bank's pretty big. And you can look at people that you have known that had incredible gifts that ten years out, twenty years out, thirty years out, I can go farther than that. And you find that the promise that was there when they were at Asbury was never fulfilled. And then you find another person that when he was at Asbury, people said, well, he's not one of our best. And then you come along 30 years later and find the person is significant and counting and creative and influential. It's a wonderful thing to get all of one's energies and resources concentrated and when they're concentrated on what is right and good and best, it's amazing what can come out of an earthen vessel like you or me. Now, another thing is that it helps you see more clearly. And if you've got to read the horizon, that's extremely important. One of the advantages of having grandchildren is that they keep you halfway in touch with the world that has moved on beyond you. So the other day I found myself, my grandchildren, taking me through a museum. And there was a section of it that they were very interested in my seeing. It was a section on hologram. And so they took me in and stood me in front of one of these things and said, Do you see it, Grandpa? Do you see it? And I said, See what? And then they said to me, just stand there. Keep standing there. Concentrate. Give yourself to the picture and you will see. So I started ruling out the distractions because I've lived with them long enough when they tell me anything that seriously. They're usually right. And so I ruled out the distractions and just stood there like a knot on a log, rooted and waited and waited, and waited, and the thought came, there's nothing there. <laughs> but then there are those kids, and I kept waiting because I knew they were going to say, did you see it? And even in my stage of the game, you don't like to flunk your exam. <laughs> and as I stood, suddenly, it began to come. And they said, do you see? Do you see? Do you see? And there it was. Now, did you notice what they said to me? Concentrate and give yourself to the hologram and you'll see. There is something about that concentration that enables you to see. In fact, Jesus said, <laughs> if you let him concentrate you enough, 
you'll see God. And it's trickier to see him than it is to see a hologram. Now, there is another thing when you can concentrate like that. You have a lot fewer regrets. You know, I think Peter came to this when the Spirit of God filled him at Pentecost. But before that, his thinking was so twisted. And his heart was divided enough that when a girl looked at him the night before the cross and said, Do you belong to him? Peter said, Oh, I'm not one of those. And he lamented that the rest of his days. Now, the only way to avoid massive regrets is to concentrate on the best and the truth and the good and God. Now, the last thing I want to say is it makes you a whale of a lot freer because the controls are not out there. They're here. And that means that when the pressures come, like they did on Peter, from outside here, they do not control you, but there is a grace within from him that no matter what the pressure, you can stand clear and be free. Let me illustrate one that moved me very deeply. Recently, I had the chance to hear a former president, vice president of Ford Motor Company, give his Christian witness. He's 62 years of age, something like that. One day had been a particularly bad day. And when he came home that night, he, his wife met him at the door and he looked at her and said, Phyllis, I need a few minutes alone. I need a few minutes to pray. So he went in his study and pulled the door shut. His wife said when he came out, the weave of the carpet had left its mark on his forehead. As he knelt and bowed before God, he said, Lord, things aren't going right. And the Lord said, that's right. He said, well, what's wrong? And he said, you're in the wrong place. And Joe said, what do you mean I'm in the wrong place? And the Lord said, Joe, I don't want you working for Ford Motor Company anymore. He said, Lord, what do you mean you don't want me to work for Ford Motor Company anymore? I've been assured that I'm the top candidate for the presidency of Ford Motor Company. And if I leave now at 56, 57 years of age, I'll lose 10 to 20 million dollars. And the Lord said, so what? And he said, really? And the Lord said, yes. You're, that's not where I want you. He said, Lord, where do you want me? He said, I want you in hospice work, helping people die. 
He said, you have great gifts in that way, and I have prepared you for it. And he said, do you know, in the last 18 months, I've helped eight, last two years, I guess it was, he said, I've helped 18 people die. Two with AIDS. One with Lou Gehrig's disease. He said, if I were you, I'd ask the Lord not to let me go with Lou Gehrig's disease. But he said, do you know, these are the best days of my life. I'm right where I belong. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I'm doing exactly what I was made to do. I think. And God is blessed. And he said, do you know, that's freedom. I was interested in how he got that way. <laughs> I've never met a great many of people like that. In fact, he's the only one. <laughs> so he told us. He was 26 years of age. Member of a Methodist church in Detroit, Michigan. The church had a missionary conference. He said there was a couple brought in among the others as missionaries from Taiwan. And he said, uh, they put that one couple from Taiwan in our home. And so he said, Phyllis and I had three days to get acquainted with this delightful, challenging young couple. He said, uh, I was impressed enough that at the end of the three days, I looked at Bill and said, Bill, I envy you. He said, what do you mean you envy me? He said, you have such an opportunity to influence the world. And Bill said, Joe, how many people do you deal with, handle in a week? Oh, he said, 250 regularly up, could go up to 500. Bill said, you know how many people I meet a week? Between 12 and 18. And some of them speak a dialect I don't understand, and some of those 18 don't understand the dialect I speak. Why would you ever envy me? Not where you are that counts, it's who you are. And what you do is where you are. He said, you know, uh, a thought came to my head. He said, could it be that a person could live his life devotedly for Jesus Christ in Ford Motor Company? He said it was radical enough that it sort of allured me and enticed me. And he said, I prayed and God said, that's what I want you to do. He said, when I became a vice president, he said, uh, in Detroit, a vice president is a public figure. So he said, I spent $12,000 of my own money and bought an hour of TV time and offered to answer any question about Ford Motor Company or about my division that anybody in the TV audience had. He said, for 57 minutes, the questions came without any break. He said, after 57 minutes, the red light on the central camera turned on, and he said, uh, 
I knew we had three minutes to go. And he said, the questions, interestingly enough, stopped at that point. So he said, I looked into the camera and said, I have one final thing I want to say before we close. And that is that Ford Motor Company is not the most important thing in my life. Ford Motor Company is a great organization, and it's been a high privilege to be a part of it. But there's a dimension in my soul that is too big for Ford Motor Company ever to fill. And he said, I've found what can fill it and satisfy it. It's a person, and I've given myself wholly to him. Now, he said, if you'd be interested in asking me any questions about that, here's my telephone number. And if you'll tell my secretary that it's about this, she'll put you through directly to me. And here's where my office is in Ford Motor Company headquarters is. He said, do you know I have the privilege of witnessing to 250 people over the telephone and the privilege of leading one man to Christ at my death? And I thought, I believe I understand. How does a man come to the place where he can walk away on less than 24 hours notice? from 10 to $20 million if there's something in his life more important. And what a man it made out of Joe Corey. You know what I think our society, our culture, our world is looking for? For people who believe that purity of heart brings blessings and brings God and will give themselves to it. And if they don't come from the likes of you, where will the world ever see them?